Welcome to episode three of season three of Saltgrass, Turning the Goldfields Green. Today we are talking about masks and permaculture. How are those two things related? Well, in several ways it turns out. We have three guests today. Ginny Thomas is someone you may know from an episode in season one about boomerang bags. Recently, she's been working with refugee and immigrant women through an organisation called Sisterworks, and they have been making washable, reusable cloth face masks. Then we talked to Virginia Solomon, who has also been making masks, but this time as a fundraiser for Permaculture Australia. And finally, we chat with Ian Lillington, who has been a leader in and educator of permaculture here in central Victoria for over a decade. And he talks to us about how the permaculture movement has had an impact in our region and also finds ways that masks and mask wearing in times of pandemic are related to the principles of permaculture. First, though, I would like to acknowledge that this program was recorded and produced on Jara country, home of the Jajawarang. They never signed a treaty and sovereignty was never ceded. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. Back in March, when coronavirus first emerged in Australia and we went into lockdown, we could see many people in Asian countries were wearing masks and over there it was a culturally acceptable thing to do. But to us it seemed, you know, kind of extreme. Back then, the concern was more that our medical professionals would run out of personal protective equipment, or PPE, including masks. But here we are, five months later, in our second wave of infection here in Victoria, and the state government has mandated that we all wear masks when out in public or at work, if work is not at home. So disposable masks, what looks like a paper product, is in fact made out of plastic and will not decompose. It was already a problem back in March. In fact, I covered it in episode 10 of season two. So imagine how bad it has become since then. People have noticed disposable masks and gloves floating in the ocean or washed up on the shore. Back in June, France ordered over 2 billion masks. And that is just France. And that was two months ago. So as they are recommended to help slow the spread of this deadly virus, and at the moment they are mandatory for us here in Victoria. Let's talk about masks and how we can make better choices and minimise our impact on the environment. First up, we'll hear from Ginny Thomas, founder of the Castlemaine branch of Boomerang Bags, a group of volunteer sewers who made reusable cloth bags to sell or offer for free to the local community. For the last few years, they've been instrumental in helping our region transition away from disposable, single-use plastic bags at the shops. These days in Castlemaine and surrounding towns, you can see most people carrying cloth bags into the shops and very few plastic bags coming out. So again, check out that episode on Ginny and the Boomerang Bags group from 2018. The link is in the episode notes at saltgrass.podbean.com. The Boomerang Bags group is winding down now and Ginny has turned her thoughts towards the pandemic and our community's use of single-use disposable masks. But she is not just making reusable masks, she is using mask making as a way to help migrant and refugee women in our region through an organisation called Sisterworks. So we got started with mask making very, very early on. 
the moment that we had the COVID-19 hit, you know, a few of us were very aware that masks would make a difference. At that time, it wasn't recommended because I think there was a afraid that everybody would go and rush for the N95 mask. And then, you know, those who are really needing it, like in the medical environment or workers, might there might be a lack of supply. So we started making masks to try to see if we can help supply the medical because when uh, COVID-19 hits, nobody really knows what COVID-19 is about. We all hear the horror stories of in China how you know, beds were overflowing, people out in the corridor, people were dying. So so that was uh, you know at the early stage where we thought there might just be a big need for masks. So we started making masks and that's how it all started. Mm. So tell us a little bit about SisterWorks and how you got involved with them and what they do. Sure. So SisterWorks is a non-profit social enterprise. We are basically looking to empower uh, women, especially migrant women. So it started by Luz, who was a migrant refugee from South America. And prior to me joining SisterWorks and prior to even Boomerang Bags, I was repairing sewing machines and wanting to start, start something very similar locally within Kasamane and Bendigo. And three years into that, I started contacting people. And I think uh, I, I tried to contact Sister Works in uh, Melbourne, but at the time they were not ready for something in rural Australia. So Sister Works began in Melbourne, is that right? That's correct, yeah. They have a shop front in Richmond. I think they had also pop-up shops like in South Melbourne Market. They have pop-up shops in on Chapel Street as well. And so the premise is to support, as you said, women who maybe need some skills or some work, but especially uh, immigrant or refugee women. That is correct, yes. Especially because they are, you know, hugely disadvantaged. If you are a migrant woman or if you're a migrant, you know, uh, a lot of them come into this country without any uh, language skills. Therefore, there's always a language barriers because the founder herself was a woman from migrant background. She started off just selling bits of things in market and then basically recognising that there were other women in the situation and then they got together and that's how it grew. And so they weren't ready for you when you first proposed starting a regional branch of SisterWorks? Yeah, that was right. So I was very patient. I just waited. So in the meantime, I was doing boomerang bags. Yeah, and I've been working to get in, volunteering in uh, refugee sort of uh, non-profit places as well like ASRC and other places and uh, LCMS in Bendigo and one of them heard about you know sister works in Bendigo and that they need somebody and so I said yep that's the job that I'll be waiting for. <laughs> I guess as a sustainability program what have you seen in terms of people's use of masks and the benefit of these washable reusable masks what are you yeah. How do you feel about that? So it really makes me cringe every time I walk out. I don't want to make it into a negative mess. It is so positive to see people out on the street wearing a mask because, you know, like now we can see the, the, the difference since we have the mask on and the social distancing and obviously washing hands is part of it. Mask is not the only solution. It is a big component of, you know, everything. Just to see all the blue disposable mask makes me cringe because I just can't bear the thought of, you know, we work so hard to get message across of less plastic and now this is, you know, what are we going to do if this gets into the waterways and up into, you know, the ocean. 
And it's it's one more thing that's been produced just to be worn once and then disposed of. So there's a huge amount of resources involved in resource. in that. Yeah. And and again, I think it's important that people do wear masks and I've I've personally got a packet of those disposable masks in the car just in case I forget to take my cloth mask <laughs> and I just have to do whatever job I'm doing and and you know I, I have used them once and and I'm still in the process of making more masks for myself so that I've got enough so that it is you can totally understand why people are wearing these disposable masks but if they can wear a reusable mask it's infinitely better for the environment yeah it's true yeah and, and you don't need a lot of cloth to make a mask and there's so many options you you don't have to go out to spotlight and buy brand new material to make a mask sure it's cute it's nice but you know there's so many creative ways you could do a mask out of three layers you know uh, with a pocket and there's so much information sharing around as well so if you want to support a social enterprise like sister works and you know and help migrant women to you know because they are learning their skill from scratch to a mask making where we expect really high quality stitching. But if you can just make a mask of whatever material you have at home as usual, you know, use what you have available. Mm. Same old story. Well, we've we've used old T-shirts and old jeans oh. and old bits and pieces from all over the place. We've just scraps from the from the rag bag even with use the best bits of those to make masks yeah to wear a mask that decompose you don't have to you know you don't have to float around in the ocean for a long time you just need to cut out a pillowcase you know cut up things that you you don't need you know once it's washed everything's clean bit of soap and water just like your hands soap and, and water, it does it. Exactly <laughs> yeah. same old story <laughs> You wash your hands with soap water, you wash everything with soap water, you put it in the sun, it kills everything, you know, it's just a natural disinfectant. You wash it well, you know, if you need to, you know, at a higher temperature, but soap and water, you know, and the sun, that's all you need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so what's what's some of the benefits you've seen of working with these women? What what are some of the stories you've you've seen emerge of of the benefit of this Sister Works program for the women involved? Oh, so inspiring. I think one thing about this job that I have is I feel really blessed and fortunate because it's something that I love doing, but it's not just a you know, a lot of people have to do, take jobs that, you know, only have financial uh, benefits this one every day you face people who have very very little come with very little have gone through very adverse situation that just makes you admire the resilience in human how resilient we are and you know how we can come out through the other side so the positive message is again you know no matter how hard things are you know we do come out on the, on the other side and you know, some people because of the hardship they face they have increased empathy for others so it is really inspiring. Every day I take my hat off to this woman. As you get to know them, obviously, you know how what they have survived and what they come through. And they still, you know, have a smile on their face. They come in, they put their heart into, you know, learning. A lot of them, when we started teaching them how to sew masks, they have zero sewing skills. Mm. Uh, and then at the end of three weeks, you know, they are doing top stitching, perfect top stitching. <laughs> you know, the quality that they put in into those masks. They work hard to support their family. They are contributing to the community that they live in. You know, they are working so hard 
Yeah. In um, learning the a new language, uh, learning everything that's new, a lot of them have come through refugee camps. So, which means that they don't, they've never had a chance to learn. Learning is discouraged in some cultures. Yeah. So they are not only learning English, they're learning a new skill. They're learning how to learn at the same time. So imagine, you know, that going through somebody's head. Plus, you know, having to work out the traumas that they have been through. So you can just imagine how. How I always feel, you know, inspired at the end of the day. Just thought, wow, you know, I'm so privileged. Yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. And and I imagine it also helps build community for them because a lot of them would feel very isolated and alone and far away from their friends and family that they knew back at home. And it helps them build connection in the community. Is that right? Yeah, that's the main aim. Yep. So like in Sister Works, we have maybe uh, in normal times, we're not crazy producing much. We may have two days of uh, production for you know for economic value and then you know one or two days of technical training and then we actually have lessons creative lessons as well for well-being so you know for them to come together and have shared their stories or you know when they're comfortable enough to share their stories and just even just have that human contact of you know being out and about and a few women sitting down together and talking and you know making beautiful things at the end of it that's so great Judy. is there anything else you wanted to say about masks or about sister works yes masks. please use a reusable face mask it does its job you now try to avoid buying disposable ones it's not hard to maintain and not hard to clean you know, it's just a, a routine we've got used now to using boomerang bags or, you know, cloth bags. It is, you know, just like at the end of the day, come home, you just need to wash your hands, wash your masks at the same time if you have to, hang it out in the sunlight, uh, have a few masks circulating, and that's it. That was Jenny Thomas, encouraging everyone to get into a routine of wearing and washing cloth masks and talking about her work with migrant and refugee women in the organisation called Sisterworks. I've put a link in the episode description to Sisterworks, so if you're interested to find out more or to buy a mask from them, you can go to saltgrass.podbean.com and have a look at the links at the bottom of this episode. There are so many different people making masks right now, including local underpants maker, high school kids, the CWA, and many others. There are many, many patterns available online and YouTube videos on how to make them. So even if your sewing skills are completely rudimentary, I bet you could make one. I am one such novice in the world of textiles. The first mask I made was following the DHHS website's pattern, and I did it with a needle and a thread. Then my partner and I spent a day trying to work out how my sewing machine worked before trying a few other patterns. Look, all I'm saying is that you don't have to be a master sewer. You can just give it a go. There are a few basic principles such as tightly woven fabric and three layers of different fabrics, which can help make your mask more effective. The old cut up sock method is great if you really don't want to pick up a needle and thread, but the large weave of socks generally makes them less effective at protecting you or others from the virus. Again, I've put various links up in the podcast description, so check them out at saltgrass.podbean.com. Next up is another worthy organisation that are making masks as a fundraiser, Permaculture Australia. 
I had a chat with their chair, Virginia Solomon, who has been making masks and selling them at their local farmer's market in Melbourne. But now you can buy their masks online too. What inspired you to start making masks and how did that come about? Yeah, well, my cousin sent me a picture of her a very handsome Nigerian husband wearing one, wearing an animal print one. He looked very smart and she said, oh, I've been making these for all my friends. I found this great pattern and here's the link. And, and I thought, oh, okay, I'll make a few for my family. So I made a few for the family. And then I went to the Eltham Farmer's Market, which is a great joy that we have here and that continues to keep happening every Sunday, even during COVID, which we're so thrilled about. Anyway, they normally only sell food. And I just approached them and said, look, if I made a few masks, given that people seem interested in them could I leave them here on the table with an honesty box next Sunday and they said oh yeah I don't think you're going to sell many but but yeah sure you can do that that's a community service we we won't get into trouble for that so can I ask when this was was this before masks were mandatory it was just before like literally the morning of the Sunday that Premier Andrews announced mandatory mask wearing and it just sort of exploded and suddenly did, they yeah. were getting all these inquiries to their website and this guy kind of rang me up and he said um i think you might need to make a few more and is it okay if you sort of stay for the day so i made i managed to make 70 masks nearly killed myself wow stayed up until two in the morning packing them and making sure they all had little how to wash me slips in them and mm. blah blah Uh, And I arrived at the market early and I sold out within an hour. (laughs) It's like, I was so embarrassed. You didn't need to be embarrassed about that. (laughs) Well, because, you know, basically it was everybody who was there before nine and Mm. most people weren't there before nine. So they were all looking disappointed and dejected. So they said, you better come back next week. And and I thought, I better come back next week, but I better get a team onto this because I'm not going to be able to make more than 70. Yes. So anyway, a bunch of us got together. I think there were about maybe 14 people doing one thing or another, some doing little bits, some doing big bits, including a 12-year-old girl and, you know, a a young woman doing her VCE and all sorts of people kind of chipped in and did cutting and ironing and whatever, you know, they, and one, one woman from the market actually volunteered to do the final step of sewing some of them, which was fantastic because otherwise I was going to have to do the final assembly of every single mask. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that. You know, with all that help, we managed to make, I think, about 200. It's my estimate. I didn't actually count them, but I think there were about 200. And I came home with about maybe 15 to 17 of those. But I managed to stay the course, so I was there the whole market. And were you, did you do more than an honesty box at that system? Like, were you... Oh, yeah, yeah. You, I actually had to take cash. Yeah. So I had one hand wearing a glove for my cash mm. And one hand to handle the the uh, masks mm. um, and, you know, hand sanitizer on the table so that people could clean their hands because cash is one of those things mm. that I don't trust yes. as far as this virus goes. Yeah. And I had, you know, samples of how they were made and another member of the FAST group came out and FAST is the, it's the fundraising and supporters team for short it's fast um, for Permaculture Australia. So that was the chosen charity that, that I decided I wanted to raise funds for because I don't do these things to make money for myself. 
I mean, the reason that I wanted to do it in the first place was because I'd seen so many of the disposables just chucked on the ground and seen, you know, posts of of them clogging up waterways. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, we're, we're starting to develop this problem in order to keep ourselves healthy. This is, you know, from the point of view of permaculture and produce no waste, it was complete anathema. And that was my my stimulus for getting onto this, but I didn't realise quite what I was getting into when I first started. So I think the the problem of disposable masks is uh, we first saw it, and I actually included it in my program back in March because China obviously had been dealing with the coronavirus on a massive scale long before the rest of the world did. And already there were reports of masks washing washing up on beaches and, and, you know, being found in strange places where obviously someone had not left it but it had made its way there have you got any anything to say about the environmental impact of disposable masks well i i just think that they are a a catastrophe waiting to happen the little elastic bits can get tangled up in in uh, fish and birds and animals and the the thing that they're mainly made of this non-woven fabric doesn't break down it's made of polyester i think or some some kind of a plastic so it's not paper it's not it's not it's a sort of a fake paper you know like it's a pressed fiber thing i think it's polyester certainly the the filter layer that i chose to use in my masks is a polyester non-woven polyester kind of pressed thing because i do recommend polyester as a good filter but yeah uh, the whole mask doesn't have to be made of that and no. if you're using a washable mask, you can then reuse it many, many times instead of disposing of one after another after another. Yeah, exactly. Some people put the two together, and I'm, I'm against that too because I think that the disposable masks are the biggest problem. And if you put them inside a cloth mask, you're still not solving the problem. Yeah. Whereas if you put a layer of the non-woven stuff, my husband is an expert on airborne radiation, actually, and he said to me, the point of that non-woven layer is that it disturbs the path of the airborne particles. So the woven stuff is just like windows, you know, the particles, a lot of the particles will go straight through. So most cotton fabric or any other fabric that we're used to is woven and there are little gaps between the fibres. Yes, from at the microscopic scale, certainly. They're quite big gaps. <laughs> so putting a non-woven layer in there will inhibit the path of those airborne particles and hopefully trap them on the other side and then when you wash them out with soap and water it's like washing your hands so that cleans them up i mean i always say that the the masks are virtually compostable you'd have to remove the polyester layer and dispose of that thoughtfully i think it's probably recyclable but you'd have to collect it together and then make sure it was but the cotton layers, they're all recyclable. The the ties I use are just tree ties, so they can tie up your tomatoes at the end of the this mask-wearing caper we're on to. Yeah, right. So a tree tie, what's a tree tie made out of? It's like, well, I think it's knitted, and they do say on it that it's biodegradable. It basically breaks down in the sun. So it's like an old T-shirt. Our masks don't have ear loops because I couldn't find elastic basically. I prefer the tie-up ones because I think you can make them fit more snugly and it doesn't irritate your ears. That's right. And as a glasses wearer my ears get enough stuff hanging around the back of the ear. That's right yeah well we've certainly had um, you know people say they're very comfortable they stay 
stay put, you can just drop them down if you want to have a sip of your coffee or whatever and then just pull them up again. So you're still making the masks and you're still using it as a fundraiser for Permaculture Australia. Yeah. Can people order them from far and wide? Do you have a website or how do people contact you? Yeah. So um, after the markets, I, I decided to try an online pop-up shop through my very simple little website, which I started in order to participate in the, I suppose it's the Retro Suburbia program. Do you know Retro The David Holmgren. That's right, yeah. So my house is a is a case study and the longer version of the case study is on this website. Right. So it, it kind of gets used for different projects here and there and then it sits dormant for ages and then something else comes yeah. up and it pops up again. So for our listeners, can you describe the Retro Suburbia project just briefly? Yes. So Retro Suburbia is predominantly a book, but it also includes a whole lot of web activity, I guess you'd call it, and case studies. And it's about ways to live in suburbia. So that kind of middle band of suburbia between the inner city high rise and the farms beyond the suburban Mm, fringe. So anything urban and suburban and yeah. Exactly. And how to kind of pool resources and live better by sharing what we all have, whether that be somebody's goat pet or, you know, one mower between four families or multiple households in the one building, which is what we have here. So I have a boarder who lives downstairs and a a flat that used to house my aged parents but is now um, on short-term rental and then there's space for us and then we have a big shared garden around us so you know it's it's ways of enriching our lives without being rich yeah <laughs> I think that would probably be a good way of describing yeah. it. and sharing resources as you said and and the idea I think is to create micro communities within a street or within a block exactly. of your home yes. yeah and even you know right livelihood like working somebody has a particular skill and everybody contributes to using their skill in some some way so maybe you know, somebody makes bread for everybody rather than everyone becoming bakers or sure. that, that sort of thing is an extension of the same idea. But it's, I mean, it's much more than that. It's a, an absolutely amazing concept. I'm hoping to talk to David Holmgren in depth about, about the Retro Suburbia idea because I know that he yeah. very generously made the web version of, of the book free for a while there at the start of COVID to encourage people to become independent of the big systems which looked like they might have collapsed. I think it's pay what you feel. So your home is a an example home in the retro suburbia. So you use that platform to to promote the masks or to Yes. So I I my daughter is a, a social media whiz and she set up a a kind of a like a page with a form on it and people order through that form and I get a an email alert and I respond to that. It's very, very basic. Yeah, great. And I just send them my um, bank details and they pay me and I send them masks. Brilliant. <laughs> very simple. And you can post all around Australia. Yes. Yeah. And so all the money goes to Permaculture Australia and I'll put the link to your website up on my podcast link. So if anyone's interested, they can jump on online and find it. Yes, it's eco-resilience, E-C-O, resilience.net.au. Easy. That's great. And so tell us a little bit about who you're raising money for Permaculture Australia. So Permaculture Australia is the national permaculture body. It's basically a membership-based organisation, but it also does 
other projects and works in other areas. We have a, a tax-deductible gift fund, which we fondly call the PERMA Fund, mm-hmm. which collects and redistributes donations. But the MASK project is actually to go towards the work of the the organisation proper and help us to promote the reduction of waste and the you know ecological use of resources in the wider community. So specifically that, not not your broader sort of permaculture? That's one of the principles of permaculture. So in the case of the Masks Project, that is the principle at play, as well as the people care ethic. Permaculture is a, a design and decision-making system, which is kind of governed by three ethics, earth care, people care and fair share, and by 12 principles. And one of those is produce no waste. So it it probably does feed into other principles. It's just that we tend to focus on a principle when we're doing projects. It's just the way we do things. So in the case of the mask project, it's looking at reducing plastics in the waste stream and, you know, getting rid of single-use products. But Permaculture Australia itself does a lot of work in a lot of areas and has, you know, a series of teams we have accredited permaculture training, for example, which is in the national training system. We have an open permaculture places program that's about to start as soon as we can open the places. (laughs) (laughs) It's a bit of a a handicap at the moment. But that will include businesses and houses and shops and not just gardens, but everything. So I think it's interesting because maybe a misconception a lot of people have is that permaculture is about your backyard home home growing kind of maintenance level and that's what it's for, like there's nothing else about it. But you, you talk about it as a set of principles that can be applied on many levels. Mm, that guide one's decision making. So one can apply it anywhere in any situation. Can you tell us the principles? Do you know them off the top of your head or do you have them no, in front of you? No, no I can't do that. <laughs> That's all right. I always get, even though I taught permaculture for years and years and years, I always have to go back to my, my results. The other thing that complicates that is that there are kind of two sets. Yeah. Because Bill Mollison wrote a set in the 70s, uh, well, with David, but and then David Holmgren refined them and made them much more rounded out. And are there links on the Permaculture Australia website to the principles? Yes. Yeah, great. So I'll put a link to the principles there. So how do you see permaculture as overlapping or linking to sustainability more broadly? Oh, well, I mean, permaculture is a sustainability um, practice. It's a, it's a way of thinking that involves sustainability at every level, mm. including financial sustainability. Mm. You know, it's not things are not sustainable if they're not financially sustainable, if they're not personally sustainable, if they're not ecologically sustainable. Mm. Sustainability is the key. I mean, we only have one planet. If we can't sustain it and it can't sustain us, we're done for. Yeah. So that is what earth care, people care and fair share are all about. That was Virginia Solomon, Chair of Permaculture Australia, talking about mask making and the organisation. 
Next up is Ian Lillington to talk about how the permaculture movement has had an impact in our regional community. Ian has been a leader of permaculture in central Victoria for some time and has taught it at the local community house for around a decade. Tell us your perspective on permaculture's role in regions like ours or small towns. Let's start local. Sure. Permaculture was uh, formulated in Australia, in Tasmania, in the late 1970s. And it's been considered one of Australia's most important exports because permaculture has really, really gone global uh, over these last few decades. But permaculture continues in many ways to be really significant in regional and rural Australia, which is really what the co-originators had in mind. Uh, David Holmgren was a student in Hobart and Bill Mollison was a lecturer at a different institution in Hobart in the 70s. And they saw a need to have a design system that combined landscape and an ecological approach and an agriculture System because our current food system is mostly fairly unsustainable. And even back in the 70s, they could see how an agriculture system that relied on a lot of fossil fuel, if, if it relies on a lot of oil and diesel and electricity, then agriculture is not particularly sustainable. So they came up with a system that used more principles and practices of working with nature rather than working against nature. And that's what permaculture uh, came out of. Around central Victoria, permaculture is very strong. David Holmgren chose to move to Hepburn Springs in the 1980s with his partner, Sue Dennett. They've established and operated a small permaculture farm on the edge of Hepburn for over 30 years. And even if they weren't doing that, then the, the, the country land here, the mixture of uh, the mixture of soils, the relatively warm summers, the relatively cool winters, they lend themselves to growing a range of foods. And um, also our proximity to Melbourne means that a lot of people who want to get out of the city come to places like central Victoria, equally probably to the Otways or to South Gippsland or maybe um, the northeast ranges out of Melbourne. But central Victoria's definitely part of a ring of rural residential resettlement that has been going on for many decades. And permaculture is a design system that helps people work out what to do on the land that they've got, where to put a house, where to put a dam, what crops they can grow. And increasingly, permaculture gets involved in social and economic sustainability as well as just the landscape. So in what ways does it do that? Well, um, the permaculture design works in seven different domains. One of those domains is the natural world. Another is the building world and that the the alternative and off-grid building networks are very closely integrated with permaculture. Then we have a domain which we call education and culture. And a lot of the ways that permaculture is influential is through the training courses that we run and through the workshops. So permaculture is a, is um, an educational system. We also we overlap with people who are involved in alternative economics, for example, local trading systems, cooperatives, 
and various fair share and and free cycle sites and things like that. So people have been exploring ways of working in in what is sometimes called the non-monetary economy. Uh, That tends to go hand in hand with local permaculture community development as well. Another of those domains is called land tenure and community governance, which is a bit of a clumsy title, I I admit, but uh, land tenure is about who owns land, who decides how to manage land, and community governance, who who actually makes the decisions around it. Local government, state government make decisions that influence us, and we we can have some say in some of those decisions some of the time. But in our homes and our gardens and on our farmland, we make a lot of decisions and permaculture is interested in how that decision-making process happens and where where the official structures dovetail and interact with our decisions that we make about privately held or on, and uh, privately managed pieces of land. So when you see a flourishing of, of a lot of different people for example, you've been running the, the education courses through Community House for at least a decade now, and you run it two or three times a year, is that right? Well, yes. Yeah, so the, the main course we run is called a permaculture design course, and that's at least 72 hours of, of hands-on training. Well, I should say a sort of classroom training. Some of it's hands-on, some of it is theory. And in fact, that, those permaculture design courses, we, we found that we've got so much material to cover we run a 100-hour course now, not a 72-hour <laughs> course. Wow. And that's become the way around the world. So Bill Mollison in 1980 called together people who might want to learn about permaculture from around Australia, and he got them to his home village of Stanley in Tasmania, and then they went back to various states around Australia and taught permaculture. And then Bill and some of those people travelled the world through the 1980s, and that really formed this thing called the Permaculture Design Course, which is a mixture of practical experience, site visits, and classroom theory. And people just love that mixture because because it's a mixture. So you get you get little bits of year 10 geography where you learn about climate of the world and, and political geography as well, but you also get practical exposure to growing fruit and vegetables, introducing bees and animals into your systems, and we, as I mentioned before, we look at things like the non-monetary economy and uh, cooperative ways of approaching and, and designing our sustainable systems. So over the 10 years, we've had usually two courses a year running, always through and uh, Castleman Community House has uh, been the, the host of those courses. And we have perhaps about 15 people on average, so 30 people per year for about 10 years. In other words, we have some hundreds of people who've done the permaculture design course locally, and they go along with hundreds, probably thousands of people each year who do permaculture design courses around Australia. And we certainly know that there are around about a 1,000 permaculture design courses in the whole world each year. Most of those courses have continued by going online, which is not as satisfactory, but it's it's still not a bad alternative at the moment. So there are literally tens or hundreds of thousands of people around Australia who have done this kind of permaculture training. We call it a holistic primary. It's the beginnings of thinking holistically. 
rather than being very specialist in certain in a certain area. And of course, these people, you know, they bump into each other in the street, on, or they they keep in touch with each other, and they share workshops and and they share visits to their sites and things like that when when they're allowed to. Yeah, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, so the so there's quite a strong network that is built up. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask: was how have you seen the culture of our region? change or what have you seen sort of flourish because of this accumulation of people who now all understand these principles? Well, central Victoria certainly has changed, and in my view, for the better in so many ways. Ten years ago, we would teach on these courses. For example, we'd teach about how people could grow food locally and it could be shared and sold through a farmer's market. Now, at that time, we didn't have a farmer's market and now we have a Wednesday market and a Sunday market. And we have people growing food locally and selling at those markets. That's not exclusively to do with the fact that there's been permaculture classes, but that has made quite a difference. And a few years ago, we had a very good organization called Growing Abundance that was harvesting surplus food and and sharing it and processing it and teaching about that. So what I call the local food system or our community food system has really been enhanced and, and really developed over these last 10 years. And part of that is to do with having people who've been uh, coming on our permaculture classes and then going to put that their learning into practice in some way. But it's also driven by a, a steady move of people into the area who know that living in a crowded metropolitan area doesn't really make sense and that they actually want to put their ideas and their energy into a place where they've got a little bit more space. I find it, I've been looking for data and I find it quite hard to find this data, but there is so much of central Victoria that has now changed from being traditional farming to being land which is held by people who are caring for the land, but they're caring for the land in quite different ways. So we have people come on our courses who may have 80 acres at Guildford or or uh, 50 acres between here and Bendigo or something like that. And if you add up all the people I know and all of their neighbours who I know that they know, most of them are not just grazing a few sheep anymore. Most of them are doing something that is more involved with revegetation or regenerative practices or producing a diversity of crops or value-adding to processes. And that can be wine. I mean, quite a lot of that... uh, Diversity is bringing wine into the landscape. and I'm not a big drinker, but I think a lot of people love the idea that they can go on getting their wine because it's being produced just down the road. It's a great benefit if we don't import our wine from, from Europe or Chile, for example. Yeah, or even Western Australia. <laughs> or, yeah, because the transport costs are huge. Not just the financial cost, but the environmental cost is huge. But that pattern is being repeated over and over with olives and olive oil with honey and bee products with with fruit and all the all the derivatives from fruit yeah and i and what i think we're going to see more of is um local production of herbs for medicinal herbs and herbs for herbs and spices for our for our cooking because once again up until very recently just like wine you can get your honey from china you can get dried mint in a packet that's come from China. 
possibly the mint was grown in, in America, shipped to China, packaged in China, and sold in Australia. But if you step outside our back door here, you, you can pick as much mint as you like. You can have it dry or fresh, and you can have three or four flavors. The idea of having our main needs provided for locally has been widely talked about on permaculture courses. But when you have a pandemic or some crisis, then those ideals start to become more of a reality. And I, I think we're going to see a lot of people who have been caring for their lands, perhaps in a fairly low-intensity way, they're going to start developing more businesses and produce on, on the lands to meet the local needs. And that, that can only be a good thing. Yeah, it is very interesting how this pandemic has has revealed the weaknesses and the strengths of our different communities and our different regions. Mm. I'm also curious, I did an episode about regenerative agriculture as a movement. I'm, I'm curious about how permaculture and regenerative agriculture align or overlap. One of the ways I talk about this is that I see permaculture as a bit like architecture. Permaculture is in the background and other things manifest from permaculture. So people study permaculture, but they don't often go and run a permaculture property or be a permaculturist. What they do instead is they set up something like a community garden or they set up a sustainable focused business or they practice regenerative agriculture or they set up a transition town program or something. So regenerative agriculture came out of permaculture. It came about because there was a bit of a frustration that permaculture was mainly being seen to be a practice for for backyards, for, for backyard production, for sort of home gardens. And that's not a bad thing, but that message was reinforced by people like um, on Gardening Australia, Josh in Perth and Costa in Sydney. They've done some lovely programs about their small backyard situations. But in fact, permaculture is a set of design principles and it can be applied to a large farm or applied to many other things. One of the longest standing best examples of permaculture is a thousand acre farm near Canberra. That's been going since 1980 under permaculture management. And it's a, you know, it's a magnificent thousand acre farm and it's so different to all the other landscape around because it's been cared for and managed in a different way. The farm's called Millpost, uh, one word, Millpost. And the, and the farmers are David Watson and Judith Turley, T-U-R-L-E-Y. Judith and David have been awarded as permaculture elders. Permaculture eldership is a process that's, that's uh, curated by Permaculture Australia, the organisation Permaculture Australia. Every two years it has a conference and it, it awards elder award to people, including Judith and David. There's another magnificent farm in, in um, South Australia that's called the Food Forest. The Food Forest used to be a 40-acre barley paddock. It, had, it didn't really have soil, it just had dust. But those 40 acres have now been completely transformed by what these days would be called regenerative agriculture. But the phrase regenerative agriculture is relatively recent. So back in the 1980s and 90s, when these projects were beginning, they were called broad acre permaculture. And you can point to some nuanced differences, but really broadly, regenerative agriculture comes out of 
permaculture principles in the same way that the transition movement also comes out of permaculture principles. Rob Hopkins and his team in, in the West of England, they, well, they all studied permaculture and they found it frustrating that permaculture wasn't being taken up more by people in small towns. At a civic level, at a whole town scale. Yes, exactly. The sort of town scale, the civic doing good in your town. And they, so they, they took permaculture principles, but they branded it as transition. And that, that in turn has influenced a lot of people who then operate in their towns and they, they don't necessarily use the word transition or permaculture. I guess these days we talk about zero net emissions as as a target, but actually when we talk about zero net emissions, we're talking about changing, fundamentally changing a lot of the structures of how our towns work and how we operate and connecting lots of things and all of those things are linked to permaculture principles, aren't they? Yes, and permaculture has never shied away from saying that things need to be fundamentally redesigned. I remember in the 1990s going to a talk about how land care and wheat farming was going to work better together. And I thought, oh, this is great. We're going to see, you know, alley cropping where you actually plant trees in the middle of the paddocks to stop erosion and so on. Um, But it, it wasn't about that at all. It was just about setting aside a small part of your land for land care and keeping on doing your wheat production in exactly the same old way. Whereas if you present a permaculture designer with a thousand acre wheat farm, um, you know, we, we would be interested in a, some uh, much more significant overhaul of the, of the farm, not just um, tinkering at the edges, because so many parts of our food production system are actually uh, very heavily dependent on high energy inputs. And there's plenty of evidence that they don't actually need to be. Yeah, so... I guess what you're saying when you say that permaculture, it, it's it's a set of principles, it's a, it's a structure that almost anything could rest on, no matter what you're thinking about, you could think about it in terms of permaculture principles. It is. There's, there's a number of versions of permaculture principles, but the mindset was developed by David Holmgren, 12, 12 principles, uh, which, which in turn build on the work that he did with Bill Mollison in the early days. And other people have rewritten those principles in in slightly different ways, but fundamentally it comes down to um, needing or recognizing that there's a great value in having a set of principles to start your design process from. And the first of those principles, for example, is observe, observe and interact. If you're not observing what's going on around you, then you're not in a very good position to decide what changes to make and how to manage whatever system there is in front of you. And it really doesn't matter whether you're designing a, a, you might be designing a digital app for your smartphone or you might be designing a piece of land. You actually need to observe what's going on in that, in that world, whatever you're designing for, because you might be noticing a gap or you might be seeing a problem. So you're, you're designing to solve a problem or to meet a need or to fill a gap. Otherwise, if you can jump in too fast and try to solve a problem, which isn't actually the problem at all. So are there any other examples of principles that would be good to share or can give an idea of what permaculture is all about? Well, a couple more that come to mind. One is called design from pattern to detail. A lot of us get drawn into details, but it's really useful to see the overall pattern. For example, 
I know you're interested in in the question of masks and wearing masks and the disposability of masks and so on. There's a pattern here which the Japanese and the uh, the East Asians generally have recognised for for decades that um, masks are really important if you're in very crowded spaces. Masks are important if you're in very closed spaces, and and they're important if people are coughing. So the Japanese call this. Well, the translators of the Japanese call this the three C's, closed, crowded, and coughing. So there's a pattern here. If you have that pattern of if you're in a closed space and it's crowded with a lot of people and there's people coughing, then you're at higher risk of catching a respiratory disease. So wearing a mask in, in those situations is really important. And that's a pattern, not just with COVID, but with flu in general. Respiratory diseases are transmitted more in the winter, in cold environments. There's plenty of evidence to show that vitamin D increases your health, your immune system in in regard to resisting respiratory problems. So this idea of getting a bit of sunshine, getting some sunshine on your skin in the winter um, for for good health, it's not just something your grandma told you to do. It actually has a scientific basis. So... Those are sort of virus-related patterns, but you can see patterns in any landscape. You can see patterns of disuse or bad use of land, for example. When you see the patterns first, then it makes it easier to design for the solution. Every spring around here, some people are complaining about the the weed, particularly things like capeweed. Capeweed and Patterson's Curse they grow in the spring where the soil was bare in the autumn. So if you don't want capeweed in the spring, you've got to do something about not having bare soil in the autumn. If you have bare soil in the autumn because you're grazing animals, then maybe you're overgrazing or maybe you need a different grazing regime or maybe you need to stop grazing and let the grass grow for a whole year. Maybe you need to mow the grass instead of graze it with animals. And then you won't have the bare soil in the autumn, then you won't have the capeweed or the Patterson's curse in the spring. So rather than trying jumping straight into the detail and trying to solve the problem, say, with spraying some glyphosate, you've got to look at the bigger picture and say, well, what's underlying this weed problem? So so when I when people get a bit stuck about what to what to do next, I say Think about the patterns before you think about the details. That was Ian Lillington talking about the permaculture movement and how it has impacted our regional community and how the principles of permaculture can be applied to almost anything, including pandemics and the use of masks. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au.